Hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode of Changing the Climate, a show where we talk about the changing world around us and how we can make it better. Brought to you by Climate Change Realty. Aloha, hello everyone, and welcome back to another episode. Of course, we are honored to be doing this show every single week again, and I am delighted to welcome my guest, Shelly Summer. Hello. Hi, Shelly. Thank you so much for being here. And of course, we always love to get the show started with a little bit of background on who you are and how you got to be doing what you're doing at the moment. Great. Thanks, Ethan. It's really nice to be here. Really appreciate it. Usually I'm not the one in front of the mic. I'm sort of in the background, kind of waving uh, my scientists like forward. Um, So this is really great. I am the the communications director at uh, the Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research at the University of Colorado Boulder. It's a really long name, Um, but it's basically our research institute. We study change in earth and environmental systems. And as a communications director, my job is really to kind of help translate the research that comes out of the Institute into human. So people can kind of get it and hopefully pick it up and use it. Um, And also just kind of make science more accessible to folks. And I got here, I was a librarian for a really long time. That's how I got into uh, this career. And that gave me a really enduring interest in how information moves around and how people pick it up and put it down and lose it and refuse it and all kind of, and structure it. And I think that's really led to a, to a big interest in just, well, how do we talk about things? So yeah, so that's how I got here. I've lived in Colorado for about 20 years. Um, I had some family ties up in the, the Northeast of the state. So yeah. That's cool. kind of the short story. <laughs> That's a short story. Yeah, well, we're glad to have you here and I appreciate you coming on the show. Something I'm thinking about when you mentioned like a library is like the library of Alexandria. How like we, yeah. we are so prone, we have all this information out there and we're so prone to just forget about it or like destroy things. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. So. We, and I got to say, librarians really worry about digital information. Yeah. And, and annotation a lot because it used to be you had a, you know, Newton had books, wrote notes in them. You can see what he wrote. Like that's, it's also apparent as long as the book is okay. But do you yeah, f- digital stuff kind of can vanish. Yeah. Do you feel like we, do we don't have like a resilient system right now when it comes to like holding on to information? Yeah, that's an interesting question. There's actually been a lot of effort towards uh, data preservation and, sure. and backup. So the, the internet archive actually is a very worthy project to check out that they have been archiving all these, I can go to all these old websites that they've just taken snapshots of and you can still navigate through them. Uh, They were definitely in 2016 with the uh, new administration coming in, there were a lot of data rescue projects to get scientific data kind of grabbed and into repositories. So I think there's a lot of attention to that, but it's definitely, uh, it can use more. (laughs) If you're really into information science, it's a great place to go nerd out. Yeah, I mean, there's almost too much information these days, and we can go into oh, yeah. a whole tangent about talking about all the different stuff that we can learn. But I want to make sure people don't yeah. forget because there's, I feel like there's a lot of yeah. lessons in our past. But before we go off right. on a tangent, I'm just uh, curious uh, how you got interested in working for Instar, like to begin with, like what drew oh. you to the, the organization? It was romance, actually. Oh, was, and science. Uh, <laughs> romance, the perfect and mix. Came later. <laughs> But uh, yeah, so I was living in Southern California where I grew up and I had uh, started dating the person who's now my husband. 
And so we decided maybe, maybe we could try something not long distance. And I was definitely ready for a change. So I was working for a tech company, it was geographic software company. And that had been great, but I was definitely ready for more in-depth conversations, I think in a more mission-driven kind of uh, uh, organization. So I started looking around in education and in the nonprofit sector and Instar was someplace that popped up. And the more I found out about it, the more interested I was in what they were really delving into. So they, it, it, it is the Institute of Arctic and Alpine Research and that sounds mm. like cold regions research and that's really, they're deeply rooted there, but it's, they've really investigate all kinds, all kinds of linked earth systems. So that kind of holistic approach to, to how things work in the, in the world is really fascinating. So took the job, yeah. became their part-time librarian. <laughs> and now uh, years later, I'm their full-time communicator. Yeah. Uh, well, thanks for yeah. communicating with me today. Uh, we're going to talk about some cool stuff. It's very interesting. I, it seems that the polls are acting as like the balancing force for the whole mm -hmm. climatary system now. Yeah, I mean, it's very interesting because weather systems that you are tropical really start in Antarctica and North America. And I mean, you can see that really readily where we are because the, uh, the jet stream kind of stalling out, you know, the floods we had in 2013, that's a jet stream stalling out. You can get the, the, you know, those bubbles of cold weather that come down to the East Coast. That's all kind of the weather getting messed with from the mm -hmm. poles. And since the poles are heating faster than other regions of the planet, it's a little bit uh, worrisome for all those scientists I work with. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, it's it's astonishing how connected those systems are. You know, we we could, we tend to put it into Arctic and subtropical and tropical and temperate, and it's like, oh no, nature's got no particular boundaries there. Yeah. Well, if you think about it, like a human, like a lot of the most interesting stuff is kind of going on in the North Pole. There's a lot, you know, in the center here, but you know, there's not too much activity. You lose a foot. I mean, you could probably keep going. We lose a, lose a pole as we are right now. We see drastic changes to the entire system, yeah. you know, yeah, scary stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. What are some of the most like important conclusions that the, the Institute has mm -hmm. reached about the state of our climate? And then of course, how we can stabilize it in the future. Right, right. Ooh, how long have you got? Um, <laughs> all right, I will try to like tone it down. Life. This is a focused podcast. Yeah. Uh, I think a couple of the most interesting uh, things that I've read about with, with my scientists' work and kind of seen in their labs and seen when they go out in the field um, is, is kind of overarching lessons about how the climate system works. And one is that quite often when we look at past climates and they look, they, they go into all these archives and they look at how temperature and salinity, all kinds of things were in the past. And you can see that the climate system tends to snap a bit between states. So it'll, it'll be pretty stable for a while and then it'll get pressure put on the system, pressure, 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 but the temperature kind of stays the same. And then all of a sudden it'll kind of snap a few degrees and then a few Years later, it'll snap another few degrees. Huh. So it gets these step changes. And I think when you, most people think about climate change, there's this sense that it, things gradually heat up or whatever, or gradually yeah. get colder in an ice age. And that's actually what we're seeing one, now that we have um, 
higher resolution data. So you can really look season by season in ice cores and things, which we couldn't do. Gosh, even when I started working at Instar, they were still taking quarter inch slices and all these years were kind of compacted into this little slice. But now you can see season by season. It's like, that, is, that stuff can change in a hurry. Um, so you really want to keep your climate stable to keep that, like, I just don't want to hit that threshold, you know, like mm-hmm. let's keep down. I think the other big lesson that's incredibly profound and I just see in all of the research is how connected systems really are. Yeah. Like all, you know, efforts to save one bird or one insect or one, you know, organism are great, but only because the whole system really works together just beautifully. And there are these teleconnections between your place and all the other places. And so stressing out, you know, one part of that system can kind of knock things out of whack in places you wouldn't think about. Um, and and in, in the same way, like stabilizing a system, protecting a system can actually do a lot to stabilize climate because you've yeah. kind of saved this whole um, network of organisms in a web of life that are really keeping things good. Yeah. Like our friends, the bees. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's like, there. did you know, I did not know this until last year, Colorado has more endemic bee species than any other state. No, that's endemic? Like, Yeah, so those those are ones that are native to here. So there's honeybees, which are native to here. They're they're a big species here, though. And then I guess there's like 940-some other species. And they're, you know, the big bumblebees and the little mm-hmm. tiny things that look like flies and they're solitary and they're ground dwelling. And it's quite fascinating. I'm like, we have so many bees. That is wild. I wouldn't think <laughs> that. Yeah. But yeah. And protecting those is really important for everything here, right? Beyond a doubt. It's so crazy how there are these like tipping points or stepping off yeah. points that you described. So yeah. I'm wondering, is there a stepping point in the right direction for stabilization? Can uh, we jump from out of control to back into a nice stable climate potentially? Oh, 20, that's 40, a 50 big years? question, right? Right. Yeah. Uh, that doesn't have a really great answer. Um, <laughs> because we are really already committed to some changes. So you know, mm-hmm. it's been a pretty tough year, right? Yeah. For people in, in climate uh, who kind of get what's going on. It's like, well, last year, everywhere I've ever loved burnt. Mm-hmm. Like that was hard. Like we're just seeing a lot, like this year, we're seeing a lot of our kind of climate chickens come home to roost. Yep. Um, there's a uh, Kate Marvel, who's an amazing climate scientist and also a great communicator says, we are sending our children to live on an unfamiliar planet. Mm. Like, kind of get you you know yeah so I don't, where am i going with this <laughs> there was there was some place we were going with this so it was a little more hopeful than that well the idea um, is to if we're jumping in the wrong direction go in yeah, the right can direction we jump in the right direction and it, it's like well that's that we're committed to that change right mm-hmm. but there are still systems that are that have not shifted like we haven't gone over the edge on on some systems it's like if we can just pull back from that we save a lot yeah, like a lot. There are still a lot of ecosystems. There are a lot of species. And it's like, it's, I think we will do a lot of grieving over the coming years over what we're losing. Yeah. But there will be so much to celebrate if we can preserve some permafrost and preserve some, some insect webs and, 
you know, definitely preserve French wine. I would love that. <laughs> Just saying. Yeah. <laughs> so I think I'm, that conversation is super worth having. It's like, well, in a climate change world, you know, what's worth keeping and mm -hmm. like wine, what's worth letting go? Like racism might be worth letting go. Just pot. It's, it's possible that people yeah. I'm open to the possibility. Yeah. 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 <laughs> well, yeah. And yeah. I think, you know, the, the more like we are definitely at, a, at an amazing inflection point. So we have a chance to really move now. And I feel like people are behind that. They, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, we know from the Yale project on climate communication that the majority of Americans believe climate change is happening, believe humans are causing it, believe it will harm people in the U S and plants and animals in the U S and people around the world really a solid, solid majority in all states, really. And uh, but we don't, we don't, we're not talking about it. We're not acting hard enough. Mm -hmm. So like, yeah, we, we definitely can. And I think it's the same yeah. thing. Uh, like we, we really see like the extremes in the media. And I think most yeah. people are against racism yeah. are against poverty, just like, or mass right. poverty for everyone. I think it, a lot of things yeah. are kind of common sense. Yeah. Um, but when it comes to like these specific scientific conclusions, like these tipping points right. or these breaking points, how do you communicate this to someone who's completely not versed in scientific literature at all to, con mm. I don't want to say convince, but at least get them mm. on the path towards action because we kind of need to all work together to get these, right. the, uh, these solutions in play, you know? Right, right. And that, I mean, that question has actually been kind of bedeviling my field for a while which beyond is, a doubt keep talking about science and nobody seems to be like you know they need to be systems on fire right they need to feel yeah. it personally somehow you know exactly and i think that's that's kind of where where climate communication went wrong for a mm -hmm. long time was that we told stories about science you know science and lab stuff and faraway places and polar bears that are, you know, kind of, they're nifty, but they're kind of far away. And it all seemed like it was in the future. And they just didn't, they didn't really speak to the heart and they didn't speak to people where they lived. Um, and you can, you can see that, like, I, I think probably the best climate communicator right now is, is Mary Hagler. I don't know mm. if you've ever read her stuff. I'm not sure. It's, her last name is for those people listening, H-E-G-L-A-R, go look her up. She writes incredible essays that are so rooted in her lived experience and in an amazing um, learning capacity of like what, the, what has been happening in the world. And she just, she connects that with your lived experience and you just come away transformed. Like you are, yeah. you're ready to take to the streets. And I'm like, that's, that's how we need to start talking about science. I don't even know if I do it. I mean, I kind of, you know, I hope on my best days, but yeah. Yeah. She's amazing. Well, it's challenging. I think people don't realize that a lot of their decisions and the way they process information is done in an emotional way. They need to yeah. feel like they're, it's like their, their life is on the line or their family's on the line, or even so they need to feel like they're being a, the best version they can be, or they're right. failing to live up to their own expectations of themselves. And I think that's the best way to get through to right. people is not shoving metrics and logic down their brain, yeah. which, which they'll get, but then they'll go on yeah, to be stressed out about having to get home. Yeah, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. And in, and in fact, there's built into the structure of science with how we invented it starting in the 17th century 
was this kind of um, conception of, of the objective scientist, right? Like mm-hmm. you're a little bit above the fray. And there are absolutely reasons for that that are rooted in the historical. Like I did my uh, uh, master's or undergrad thesis um, and started a master's thesis on that topic of like mm-hmm. how you construct the scientific identity from the cultural materials at hand. And that was actually to prevent religious war. I mean, it was, it's a tool that like, that's why it developed, but it's, it's a bit of a handicap now. And what I think is quite fascinating is that younger scientists are casting that off and they are, mm. they are seeing that we actually have, and let's just use a really fancy term, but like we have something that Naomi Oreskes calls um, um, epistemic proximity. Mm-hmm. And what that means is if you spend your life like up to your, you know, swimming in climate change information, you know what this means for the future of the planet, you actually have a moral obligation to make that clear to people. Mm. Like there is no above the fray because you are also a citizen and human and, you know, maybe a parent and a friend and a kid. And like, you need to be um, moving up to that. So I think I've, I have not met a young scientist who doesn't have that compulsion to some extent. Do you ever spend any time talking to to climate skeptics or do you know anyone who has experience doing that? Oh yeah. Well, you probably have experience in one's own family. I mean, my sister Mm -hmm. and her husband are, you know, by climate change just in really real books from strange places. And you can say some compelling stuff in those books. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's, you know, it's all strung together into this little argument. And as long as you're not actually applying critical thinking and wondering who are these people? Do they have any training in science? Well, no. <laughs> um, I think it's easy to get caught up, and they do. Convert- yeah. Although I will say that although she is a skeptic, her family lives a more climate-wise life than many of my neighbors in Boulder, mm. who How are so? who very much believe in climate change. They are thrifty. They reuse things. They don't buy a lot of new stuff. They don't travel by plane a lot. Know their diet's fairly low carbon. Like actually, you can believe what you want, but you're living <laughs> less less of a carbon footprint than many Americans. So, yeah, well, you know, less think, expensive life as well is yeah, less carbon yeah. impact. Yeah, exactly. And I think that's where it comes from. So, kind of living a thrifty life, but so much of our footprint is consumption and transport. So, you know. yeah. But yeah, so it's it's an interesting conversation, and I think the where I've really been able to connect with someone is mm-hmm. and it's you know not everyone is movable um but i have made some interesting connections when you start talking about how people are experiencing climate in their own life right mm-hmm. so i have uh, some relatives in, who are farmers and we talk about how the weather's changed in their lifetime and how water's changed and they won't call it climate change but essentially mm-hmm. they know that weather has changed right yep so we kind of arrive at the same place without necessarily, and then and and I've actually kind of started asking at the end, like, so what do what do you do about that? Because this threatens our livelihood, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so and that I think that's where just by mostly asking questions and listening, um, sometimes you can make a connection with folks that they didn't kind of make on their own before. That's the key again, just showing people that you care and that we're all looking out for each other's best interests is is important beyond just people who 
um, don't believe in the science at all. You're, um, you're obviously well-versed in the science and I meet lots of people who are well-versed in the science and say that we're screwed. So I don't, I'm not getting that perspective from you at all. So I'm curious uh, oh, if you think we have. Oh, talk we, a little longer. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You'll um, get do, it. <laughs> do we have an opportunity to have a livable climate? What do you uh, think? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's it. And, you know, with the caveat that things have changed and they, you cannot put that genie back in the bottle. So we uh-huh. are committed. Like we have a temperature thing and it, it's, we have, um, it will be a warmer climate from now on. And there's just. No, it doesn't matter what you do for, at this point and how many technical solutions you develop. That's just where it is. But if we avoid um, tipping, say, the permafrost system over the edge, melting all the permafrost and letting mm-hmm. all the carbon and methane good stuff out of that, and by good stuff, I mean not so good for us stuff. Uh, yeah. And if we you know, maintain it, like there was a report this week that was kind of depressing where the Amazon basin is, parts of it are no longer a carbon sink, they're a carbon source. Um, so we've we've pushed that system so hard that it's kind of starting to be an issue. So if we can keep those systems from tipping over the edge one by mm-hmm. one, then yeah, we have we can do this. Like yeah, we can we can continue as a species. But it is, I mean, climate scientists talk about this as an existential crisis, and that's not a way of saying a lot. That's a way of saying like now's the time. Yeah. So you know, find your lever and pull it. Like, and that's what you're doing, right? It's like you find trying. and you pull it. <laughs> yeah. Why? Is. Yeah. Why have we failed to take crazy action for decades if we've known about this for so long and the data just keeps yeah. getting stronger and stronger and worse and worse? Why yeah. do you think we're not taking the action that we need? Oh, my opinion? Well, let's <laughs> just put the credit where it lies. And that is from an extremely well-coordinated and well-funded campaign from vested interests like fossil fuel companies. Hmm. And that is a twin campaign for disinformation and misinformation and also to buy power. And it's been extremely successful because they they actually, in fact, there is a fascinating book by Naomi Oreskes, who is a great historian of science uh, called Merchants of Doubt. And just lays, she followed the money and just laid out the whole thing. And she says, uh, fossil fuel companies basically hired the same consulting firms and marketing firms that tobacco, big tobacco Mm -hmm. did back in the day. And all they had to do was cast doubt on the science to delay it from acting. It's like, don't care if it's true. Don't, you know, don't care if people think it's true. We just care about delaying it enough so we can make another generation or so of profit. And it worked really well. So let's wow. like that's truly is what is going on, and you can see that in political contributions and in the machinations of Congress and all kinds of things. So that trail is pretty open. But and you know there are more marketers and PR people in this nation than journalists by a factor of what I think it was four to one before the newspapers started dying off. I mean, really? you know, it's just like there's a lot of people who are interested in persuading you. Yeah, uh, in this country, and but it, it'll and, and just to like move to a second notion, um, and that that really plays into a bit of human nature, right? It's hard for us to to deal with a crisis down the road, mm-hmm. and this took advantage of that, right? So it, it it sort of leveraged that human tendency where it's like, well, it's not happening now. My kids will be fine. I'll be fine. My kids will be fine. You know, I don't really care about polar bears it's a ways off or you know something will happen it'll be fine and so 
because we don't feel that sense of urgency for something that's not happening right now, then it becomes more and more of a crisis. And that's kind of where we are, where it's like, oh, well now we're feeling the effects. And also people are really ready, more ready to move. Yeah. And I feel like it's, it's hard too, because I think at this point, you, know, you brought up that you hear so much we're screwed. Um, and there's a sense in which that's not wrong. A lot uh-huh. of us are pretty, you know, we, we, I've lost a lot of sleep over many years at this point. But it's also true that I think the fossil fuel industry is more vulnerable to its hierarchy being challenged than it's ever been. Um, more people understand climate and its effects than they've ever done. You know, it's sort of like the pandemic. Like we all know how pandemics work now. Well, mm-hmm. all for a certain value of all, lots of people, but enough to really drive a big change in attitude. We're starting to see things happen at local and state levels. Like, I don't know. Yeah. Well, there's only so much one person can do. And I just yeah. say you should, you should sleep well at night because you're doing good work. So I, and I appreciate so. you coming on. No, you are, uh, you definitely are. I really find it interesting the way you kind of see it as a, maybe a few thousand or even just a few dozen people strongly influencing this in a negative way to be like powerful people in energy companies being responsible for like yeah. a, a bad campaign of that of that being the reason why we have little action I, I had never really thought about it like yeah. that I always thought it was just all of us kind of failing to work together but yeah. you kind of make it sound like there are inf- large influencers that are trying to that tr- tried to halt us and actually succeeded which I find very yeah. very curious and that comes back to the root of of human nature and make like blaming it on greed it's uh terrifying because yeah. i don't know how to i don't know how to fix that i'm trying to, to undo sp- greed yeah yeah i'm, I'm trying I, to spin it yeah and it's it's interesting because i it's it's kind of a it really is an interesting thing to read about and i mm-hmm. highly recommend diving in although it does make you one really mad but it also makes you see it's like there's more of us than there are of them mm-hmm. and we you know and, and it's also so you know, I think in a previous conversation, Ethan, we sort of talked about individual action versus systemic action. Yeah. And kind of what are the links between those? Because you hear a lot of argument about this. It's like, yeah. well, you know, me changing my light bulbs doesn't really make a big difference. Nothing I do is really going to affect this global system. Uh, you know, I can't end injustice, blah, blah, blah. And it's, it gets down. And then what we really need is a change in systems. But it's like, I don't know how to influence the system. I'm one person. And it's like, this is exactly where status quo interest would like us to be. It's arguing mm. for both sides and, you know, taking, coming from one side or the other and arguing about it. That does like nothing but waste our time. So what we've kind of learned from science is like systems work together, right? So your, my individual action, you know, I, my, my husband and I decided we're going to cut our carbon footprint in half. All right. That wasn't even that hard actually for, you know, we got solar panels, we did this and we had a little money. So we were privileged and we could make those choices and that was great. And then, and then we're like, all right, now let's try to live like Europeans. Well, you run up against the limits of the system, right? Mm. So I think this is where individual, it doesn't mean that you do an individual action and stop. Instead, you're like, let's learn from this. Hey, wait a minute. I'm running into barriers here. I'm running into limits. Like, what does this mean? And then you learn about systems and kind of what the barriers and limits and, and feedback loops are in that system. And then you're like, wow, this, 
you know, this is causing me to do, you just keep learning other things and then you share that and then you wind up leading other people. That's where it gets interesting and you start to leverage systems change. We talk about it like it's two separate things, but actually how can you have systems change if everyone is sitting around or saying, I really wish somebody would change that system I'm part of for me. Thank you. You, you kind of, you need to be the butterfly in the climate butterfly effect, right? Totally. And what I think people don't, <laughs> I'm flapping as hard as I can over here, Shelly. My arms right. are getting tired, See but that. I'm training to make them, to make them less tired. Right. But um, <laughs> what people need to understand is that all the systems, of course, besides the, the climate system, everything in society is created by people. I think it's a quote yeah. by Steve Jobs. It's like, yeah. once you realize that when you're in society and you poke it, that something comes out on the other side, that's when you have the ability to realize like, wow, this, everything we do is yeah. just made by people and we, and, I, this I, all up. and we can change it and it gets better. Yeah. And well, the key is it always is changing. I think people yeah. are afraid, but the system is like you said, is always, is always in, in motion. And I think yeah. people underestimate the ability one person has to make a profound change, especially yeah. if you're able to find a firm foundation and really believe in what you're doing and not give up. Yeah. I think you can continue and you can inspire other people to do similar things. And that's what people like Greta and all these filmmakers yeah. like that, that I really like. What, what's, um, Attenborough like all these films that yeah. he's made now he's like these people people really do profoundly affect you your favorite directors yeah. of films or your favorite authors that you've brought up throughout this podcast one Absolutely. person can really make a difference and eventually change the system if that's what your pursuit is you know Absolutely well and the thing is when we talk about there's systems and individual change mm -hmm. like, when you think about it both of those arenas are kind of behind closed doors mm. right like what happens mm. in your house is just you and like systems who knows that's out there somewhere but it's when we bring those together and we kind of come out, you know, into the streets and like meet, meet up together, like our power is acting together, right? Like that's where stuff really happens. Mm. So if you can start to, you know, open the doors a bit, it's, it's amazing how fast things can change and things have changed fast in the past. Like we, this is not beyond our capacity as a species to do this. So, no. yeah. And I think that's what it takes is just, just don't stop and like get up in the morning and, you know, decide what your thing is that day and do it mm -hmm. and then do it over again. Yeah. Um, so let's, let's talk about your thing. Let's talk about something fun that you like to do. So how can we yeah. use like arts, hobbies and other things we like to do for fun to make positive change out there in the world? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so what I usually do in my after hours, I'm a textile artist, so I like sewing. Um, I sew clothes and I sew quilts as a as more of an art form um the clothes are kind of practical so this um and did you make I, that? I did out of oh, thrifted wow. fabric so it's cool. all about taking stuff out of the waste stream right so mm -hmm. uh and the more i have done that it's it's been influenced a lot by my day job though so mm -hmm. i think i wound up you know i just bought some stuff and started sewing stuff and then i realized actually this this can connect and i can start to instead of buying new materials. And a lot of, a lot of uh, quilting is with cotton. It's with mm -hmm. quilting cotton, which is a really pesticide water intensive crop. It's grown in some, um, it has a long history of, of slavery and you know, forced labor. And it's, there's, there's a lot of kind of ramifications to cotton and you sort of start learning about that. Um, you know, at this point I am mostly work with reclaimed materials 
Awesome. And I've worked with some pretty experimental materials. So I'm weaving some VHS tape right now, which is incredibly shiny. Um, <laughs> it's very fun. So it, it just, it gives me, I think the thing about a hobby or a pursuit, and this is true for if it's food or if it's more like making things, is it something to which you give sustained attention, right? Mm. And you care and you can take a deep dive into it. So I think in that sense, it's like, hey, it's just a way in, right? To this giant mess. And it's in a way that you can get really passionate about and maybe share that with people who are also into that. Like, that's fantastic. You know, I think the danger is it can absolutely, if you're not careful, it can get really co-opted and you can get this great capitalist thing where it's like, oh, you're interested in this, you know, quilting is a background of basically people with no money patching old clothes together to make, to keep themselves warm when it's really freaking cold. Like right. this is not a rich person's hobby. It's, it comes from a, an ancestral past from many cultures that is um, thrifty and very skilled at reuse and very in balance. And, and now it's like, oh, but you need to buy all the new fabric, buy all the new designers and you need to stash that and hoard it and then, you know, make it into new things as fast as possible and then social tweet about them. And then, you know, so it's, if you do it without reflection, it just becomes another thing that you're consuming. But yeah. I, I think that any pursuit that you're into, whatever that is, you know, and all my, it's kind of great. Part of the reason why I think Instar, which is where I work, is fantastic is all the scientists have some alternative pursuit and mm. that could be like they just have uh you know they're they're fully rounded people right so some of them like skiing and rock climbing and some of them like woodworking and some make things and but I don't know anyone who hasn't been kind of influenced in a way where they want to make a difference with that too they don't want to just switch off the I care about climate and become my happiness arrives in an endless series of Amazon boxes <laughs> right that's fair so where did when, how long, when did your like interest in textiles like originate? That's a good question. Uh, definitely since I've been here, I would say within yeah. the last decade, it's, it's kind of new. I, I pursued painting and drawing for a yeah. long time and um, started to be dissatisfied with that because you only have so much wall space. And I, what I like about textiles oh. is that they're incredibly practical in some ways. So you get these kinship with paper, with fabric that they wrap and they fold and they're at the same time quite fragile and yet can last for centuries. They can encode information, they can hold images and die. Um, and we, but with fabric, it's like you wrap it around your body, it's, it's clothing, it's protection, it's armor, it's warmth. You know, so there's this kind of sense of like, I don't, I don't like to make, I will occasionally make a show piece to talk about climate or sustainability yeah almost like otherwise all of my quilts are able to be washed and worn and are meant to be used awesome yeah yeah i think art is is just awesome to have some sort of outlet to get your your feelings into the physical and be able to admire it and have it like I've always been like a filmmaker so i even was just with watching films with my friend Yeah, yeah not even films just like encapsulating like the moment like we were just watching some yes. old videos from last year and I've always enjoyed like putting the pieces together in projects and obviously I've encompassed that into my business but having some totally. having some sort of outlet creative outlet to create something look back and admire it and then yeah. try and make something better as you go on it's just I think really healthy and like healing for people you know 
that because you're capturing that memory and it's not just mm. what you saw it's what you felt and what you experienced right and you're right putting that into one little clip of light and shadow how mm-hmm. cool is that it's really cool yeah so i love bringing the the and and it, it does pull people into i think there's a, such a strong connection between art and science and especially mm-hmm. around climate and the planet that we inhabit right and we've I've programmed, um, part of my job's been programming art, rotating art for the space in which we work at the university. Sweet. And the, the biggest reaction we ever got was actually to a sustainable quilting exhibit. <laughs> like my quilt huh. guilds decided to, you know, have that as a theme and they, Amazing. You know, we had several different themes of like alternative fabrics and uses of things and taking an old quilt and remaking it in a modern style and and people were so into it. And I think it was because you could really touch it. I mean, you aren't really supposed to touch the quilts, but you know, we all did it, right? So <laughs> it's, it's just so, it's so tactile. And I think that really pulls people in. So totally. not just art, but art that art can really change you. Like a book can change you and it can happen. Like it just, if it hits you at the right moment, it can just flip you all around. Yeah. So. Cool. So speaking of books, you were a librarian for, for how long? A decade or, or more? Oh, much more. Yeah. Since 1991. Actually, before that, I had a student job in the library at cool. college, which was how I got um, accidentally pulled into a, this career. It really was okay. an accident. Uh, everyone seems <laughs> uh, to say in that. 1989, I think. So it's it's been a while. Yeah. And I, I really stopped being a librarian maybe five years ago. But Fair enough. There's, there's still habits of thought up there. You know, I'll alphabetize your sock drawer. Like, hmm. alphabetize a sock drawer. Totally do that. How does Backwards that work? Forwards. Some mystery. By color? What? Professional secret. Okay. We'll have to talk after the podcast. But um, <laughs> how, how has your love of literature helped to shape your views of the world? Ooh, that's good. I mean, to be honest, I never had a fiction library, sadly enough, although I did sneak some in. But is, does fiction change your life? absolutely absolutely Mm. I mean I yeah it's been such an influence on me and other people and I think that's because when you read a good book you are living someone else's experience right you are in you are inhabiting that person or you fall in love with that person like or you really understand that person and for me I mean I love to read science fiction so that's kind of my mm-hmm. my particular kink and I can remember reading Left Hand of Darkness when I was just a kid and it was so profound uh, because it's a you basically are living in a society without gender and it, mm. it so acculturates everything that we do and so you have a a human observer who is you know gendered and then everyone else kind of is neutral and then switches back and forth and the premise of the book was like what do you have to do to get a world without war was actually where she started this book I mean it's quite fascinating and in the preface for it Le Guin writes that science fiction and literature in general is lying to tell the truth that's what it's for that's all we do is lie to tell the truth and uh and that's really what it is I mean once you've sympathized with a pack of alien dog-like creatures who are only sentient as a pack you know, differences between human beings, it's just not that big a deal. Yeah. 
I, I, I think we all know that, but we're not living it out. It's so strange. Yeah. It's like we yeah. know it when we sit and reflect, but we, we are yeah. prompted to just continue to act and move and move and move. Right. We just do what we've been doing, you right. know? Well, and, so, and social pressure <clears throat> says, who are you in the society? A consumer. Mm. And there's a huge push towards individualism, which can be great, but they, there needs country. to be this balance with the common wheel, you know, common W-E-A-L, where we see things like a common good, right? A library, just for example, is a common good. You know, I pay, I don't know what in taxes each year. It's really not much. And in Mm -hmm. in exchange, I get these people make this amazing curated collection of beautiful stories for and and activities and opportunities for me to just go take complete advantage of as part of this common wheel. Like that's how we need to operate with the whole planet, really. I like that. God bless Wikipedia. Yeah, (laughs) exactly. It's that kind of project. It's like no one is in it for Wikipedia glory. Everybody's (laughs) like, I know a lot about, you know, this particular TV series. And now you will too. Yeah. It's it's, it's fantastic. Share the love. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. Um, Can you tell me a bit about your experience as director of the Albert A. Bartlett Science Communication Center? Oh, what a great question. Um, so I don't know if you know, if your listeners know who Albert Bartlett was, I don't think so. but he was a um, universe professor at the university mm-hmm. and he, he actually gave a really popular lecture on kind of the ex- exponential growth of population. And this was at a time mm. when the world's population was increasing by about 3% a year. And, um, so it's quite high and things like that. So he's kind of known as this, he was a physicist. Um, was known as a science communicator. But the other part of his life was that he actually had a lot to do with some of the local regulations that make Boulder really attractive to people. So Mm -hmm. he helped um, push the first bike paths through town. He, uh, he used children to like call their, (laughs) call the city representatives to like shame them into doing it. It was really great. Um, The blue line, which specifies there can't be development above a certain place where you get water to Um, that's yeah so the reason that our foothills aren't covered like all of southern california where i grew up is because of that um regulation Hmm. so it kind of preserves that view shed for everyone and 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 open space for everyone so the there was a very generous pair of donors who actually had nothing to do with the bartlett family whatsoever but they really are you know think climate is the biggest threat we've got and we're really um, invested in communication. He was a communication professor actually, uh, not how he made his money, uh, clearly <laughs> being a professor. Uh, but so they, they donated some money for this informal center. So it wasn't formalized through the university but we were able to have the resources to try to help unify scientists identities as scientists and also as active citizens. Mm. And that's something that uh, it's, I, I personally think that's a really important thing for us to have. So if you have scientists oh, who are active citizens, they can become storytellers and advocates and effective communicators to say like, we really need to move, like this is what the science is finding. Let's all take the good option, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. So we tried to hold, we hold a lot of workshops and, uh, uh, events and panels and things like that that would 
hand scientists, particularly young scientists. I mean, it was graduate students and postdocs. Um, yeah. Some uh, uh, more early career faculty who would just hand them the tools to do that, to be better communicate, up their game at communication, and also to just help unite those identities that sometimes the structure of science can, can try to pull apart a bit. Mm-hmm. And that's when you get a really boring science that nobody would cares about because it right. doesn't connect. Well, I think a lot of people want scientists to not patronize them and say like, yeah. we, we're the scientists, we've done all the research, we know what's best. People want to connect yeah. with someone who's telling them something. They want to feel like right. they're having a, a respectful conversation. And that's a cool way for scientists to be like activists, to really get down on the level of the average citizen. I think taking yeah. back to what we were talking about to connect with people is to feel like, hey, I hear your point of view. And then like, mm-hmm. here, here's mine. We're going to exchange. Here's this is a conversation. Saying. This is not a lecture, you know? Right. Exactly. Exactly. And a good scientist really understands the limits of their knowledge. Yeah. Right? So, so it's, it's rare that, I mean, at least the earth scientists I know are all pretty mm-hmm. like, well, here's what we know really. And, and they mathematically know, like, here's what I'm really, really sure about. Like, here's the part I'm not sure about. Yeah. Know. I mean, so let's, I feel like my, let's chat. I feel like my generation's learned a lot more from someone like Bill Nye than from yeah. like actual like PhD scientists, you know? Yeah. It's all about, it comes yeah. back. It's all about how you communicate. So thank you for trying exactly. to communicate this important stuff to everyone. I really appreciate the work you're doing. <laughs> uh, well, you too. I really, you know, you donating from like half your province is just, you found your lever and pulled it. And that's what we should right. all be doing all the time. So mm-hmm. people if, are going to do it. that keeps happening, it's going to work. Thank you. So, yeah. Right? Yeah. We're you guys, things. not just me, um, beyond just what I'm doing, what advice do you have for what other people, young people who are coming up in this mm-hmm. crazy world, what advice do you have for them? What can they do beyond just giving mm-hmm. away half their money? You guys can be better than me. You can be more creative than that. I think can we, we can be so creative. I mean, actually my advice is people my age, a little older and older mm. people, which is you owe this generation more than they're getting. Like you open that, you need to really act and, and you need to be not just believing it in your heart. I don't care what's in your heart, really. I mean, I do as a person, <laughs> but I don't really as climate activist. What I care about is like pressure your local governments, talk to your neighbors, talk about like, hey, I got a mini split and here's how it all went down. We're like, hey, I, I decided to stop getting beef because of climate and like, here's how I went down and like, mm. or you're part of a faith group, um, you have dinners, maybe you should talk with them about like, can we make this a plant-based dinner? Like a little less meat focused, a little less, meat. like you can, you can start to pull those community levers and governmental levers, write your Congress people, absolutely, write your state legislature, like find a lever, <laughs> pull it. And for, for young people, I'd say when people my age tell you, oh, that's really not, that's impossible, that's practical, we can't move that fast. It's like, no, a destroyed planet, that, is very impractical. Like moving fast, that's that's just hard. We can do that. So yeah, I think we're seeing a lot of limit shift right now. We're gonna see more limit shifts. We're gonna be living really differently in a generation. And mm-hmm. we have an amazing chance to choose what that is. Yep. Like we could just let that go and then nature will choose for you. And you won't like that choice. Mm. But we could also like, what if we picked a place where we had clean air and water? And where everything we bought instead of 
having a footprint and being a little less bad actually regenerated systems. Mm. What if we actually had equity and justice for everybody and people could just kind of do their thing? I mean, I would want to live there. Like, yeah, it might have some heat waves and some problems, but I'd kind of be okay with that. I think most people would too. It's just figuring out how we're going to get there. And I like the attitude and I think we're going to figure it out. Ah, thanks, Ethan. Well, it's really been a pleasure having a chat. Uh, It's been an honor. Did I do actual hand waving or just just verbal hand waving? Maybe a little. Maybe a little. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I really enjoyed having you on. And like I said, I appreciate what you and Merritt are doing over at Instar and everyone else involved in the community. Uh, Yeah, I was was very, very lucky to have her on in the beginning of the show and I had very little credibility. So shout out to Merritt Turetsky again. She's the director, right? She is our director. Mm -hmm. She is changing the very structure of science and making it a more equitable place. She's awesome. Awesome science. Yeah, I'm, I'm really, really privileged to get to work with her. So yeah. listen to her interview. You will learn much more than you did from me. That's good. damn sure. Yeah, but we had a lot of fun today and I really appreciate you yes. coming on. So thanks so much for taking the time, Shelly. It's been, it's been real fun. You bet. I'll look forward to next time. You got it. All right, everyone. Have a fantastic weekend. Get out there and pull some levers. <laughs> Thank you so much for tuning in to another episode of Changing the Climate, the official podcast of Climate Change Realty. If you are very passionate about these issues and you know anyone considering buying or selling a home anywhere in the USA, then please visit ccrboulder.com today.